0: Well, by way of introduction, I want to talk you through Revelation 1, 2, and 3 just a little bit. In Revelation chapter 1, there is a vision of Jesus Christ that is amazing. It is unmatched. It's this great and glorious vision of who Jesus Christ is, that He is Exalted, that He is all-wise, that He is all-knowing, that He is the King, that He is sovereign, as in He is the ruler, that He is the judge. It's amazing, amazing vision of Christ, a literal vision of Christ. And it's amazing in and of itself, but it seems to be there in Revelation chapter 1 for a specific reason. And that is to provide motivation, because this Jesus is going to then go and talk to, go and then affirm, go then and critique seven churches. I believe there are seven actual churches in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Jesus interacts with and deals with those seven churches. And some of the seven churches, he affirms, he encourages And others, he rebukes, he criticizes, he warns them of coming judgment if there isn't change. The reason I bring that up this morning is because we are talking about what our priorities are. We are reaffirming, if you will, our priorities as a local church. I think it does us well to remember that Jesus Christ is great and that He is the Sovereign King, and that He is all-wise, and He cares about what happens in churches. How about, based upon Revelation 2 and 3, He not only cares about what happens in churches, He knows what happens in churches. And as a result of what happens, He promises His affirmation and encouragement, or He offers His rebuke And his judgment. He has every right to do this because the church ultimately belongs to him, as we saw last time. He bought it with his own blood. He owns the rights to the church and to churches. Not only that, we can look at passages like First Peter or excuse me, Ephesians chapter five, where we learned that Christ is the head of the church, meaning he's in charge. So it makes sense that he can do what he wants and he can call churches to do what he wants. Where I'm going with all of this is, the churches he affirms are churches that do what he says. They follow his book, they follow the Bible. The churches he rebukes and warns of pending judgment are churches that don't do what he says, are churches that don't follow the Bible. Therefore, I'm feeling rather motivated. I'm feeling very motivated. If we're going to talk about what our priorities are as a local church, knowing that Jesus Christ owns the church, knowing that He knows what goes on in local churches, knowing that He cares ultimately about whether or not we do it His way or we don't, I'm motivated. I'm so motivated that I want to motivate you. In one sense, perhaps we should have started this little mini-series by looking at Revelation chapter 1 and making sure that we had a reminder that we would refresh our minds of that great vision of Christ and who He is so that we might say, Oh! He's not the 98-pound weakling Jesus. He's not the Jesus who's still a baby away in a manger, no crying He makes. He's the great and mighty and awesome Savior who cares about what happens in His church. So I'm motivated, I'm thrilled, and and I'm in no way troubled by it, I guess, because I think it's good. I don't think Jesus is a big, bad, repressive Savior, and if we could only do things differently, it would be a lot better. (laughs) He's the all-wise Savior in Revelation chapter 1. He knows what's best. I think it's great that that he makes his plan known to us, that we can open up our Bibles as we will be doing, and we can see what a church is supposed to be and do based upon what he says. And how great is that? We have great freedom then to do what we're supposed to do. We can have great boldness to do what we're supposed to do. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love it that we don't have to have a special committee meeting. To gather around and let's all decide and let's have a vote and oh, the majority gets it. Here is what our priorities are going to be for the next year. I love it that we don't have to say, all right, let's figure out what really seems to be the hot trend right now. So that we can really pack the place out and we'll just make sure that we follow the big hot trend. And won't that be great? What kind of confidence would we have in that other than confidence in ourselves? I love it that we don't have to say, hmm, what we need to do is look and see what big wave is coming, you know, and we need to catch God's wave. I'm using real life illustrations, by the way. I love it that we can say, all right, let's do our best to open up the Bible and say, all right, what does Jesus say that he wants us to do? All right, then. If a lot of people come, Cool. Nobody comes? Cool. (laughs) Might not be as encouraging, but at the end of the day, you know, this is about Him anyway because it's His church. We want to do what He says. Now let's make sure we're honest enough as we have a list of ten priorities for Omaha Bible Church, ten priorities for any local church, ten priorities for any Christian. Let's be honest and, and acknowledge God doesn't, Give us a leather-bound list of ten things. Okay? didn't come leather-bound anyway, but you get the idea. We have 66 books in our Bibles. There's a lot more than just ten things. And I, of all people, don't want to make it so simple as to say, let's just focus on these ten and that's all there is to it. God said a lot more than that. This isn't an inspired list. But, if we were to read our Bibles, that would be a really long introduction. Okay, ready? Go. Read your Bible. Well, that's not going to work. But if you were to read your Bible, you would try to categorize and say, what do we need to do? What are the things that are emphasized? Read your New Testament, figure out what, the, what is happening over and over again, what the priorities need to be. And I think, I can't say for certain, that most things would fall under these ten categories in one way or another as far as priorities are concerned. And so we're revisiting these. It's been a long time since we've just written them down and said, all right, these are our priorities as a local church. I hope they're reaffirmed all of the time as we're preaching through books of the Bible. But every once in a while, just to stop and say, let's acknowledge what the big ticket items are so that we can know what we're committed to, so we can be committed to them. And that's why I've offered a list of ten priorities for us. As a local church, again, it's not new. As a matter of fact, if you went out to the literature rack out here and you picked up the little brochure that's the marks of a faithful church, you'd find my sermon outline. Ah. (laughs) But it's been years and years and years since we've talked about these things. These aren't new things. We're not changing the direction of the ship in any way, shape, or form. In one sense, I don't want anything to ever change other than for us to be more faithful at, at doing these things. I like what Charles Hodge said years and years and years ago when he was teaching theology at Princeton Seminary. He said, nothing new has ever come out of Princeton Seminary. Boy, how things changed since he said that, huh? Now, everything is new. (laughs) Now, Now that's what's idolized is the new. But his point was, what we're trying to do here is teach The Bible. What we're trying to do here is not be novel, trendy, or otherwise. We're just trying to stick to the text. We're just trying to stick to the script. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has given it to us and we're going to do our very best with His help, by His grace, to stick to it because we know that if we do that, that is what's going to glorify Him and honor Him because we're showing that we're in submission to Him, we're under Him. That shows that He's above us. That's called glorifying Him. And in that same spirit, that's what we're trying to do. Well, we looked at the first three last time. Some of you are getting nervous because your Bibles aren't open yet. Um, just open them up somewhere. Maybe you're in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we'll get there, I promise. By way of review, we looked at the first three priorities. We, we revisited those, last, or we looked at them last time. I'll just briefly mention them in case you want to write them down. The first priority we would want to have would be the glory of God. The glory of God as our supreme goal. And that needs to be number one. God is ultimately in the end above all other things He might be committed to. Yes, it's wonderful He helps us. Yes, it's wonderful He saves us. Yes, it's wonderful that He does all of these great things. But ultimately in the end, God is all about glorifying Himself. And that's because He's God. And He's the only true God. Therefore, it ultimately ends up looking a lot like... He's God, and so everything goes back to Him as being the author. Everything goes back to Him as being the perfecter. It shows how great He is and how creative He is and how gracious and wonderful He is. And so, that's why we have passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. That's, that's really an invitation, and inviting you to be on God's team, if you will. It's an invitation saying, you know, you really want your life to count? Well, if you're all about what God is all about, obviously that counts. And God is all about bringing glory and praise to his name. We talked about that at length last time. Let's move on to a second priority we would have as a local church, as much as I still want to talk about the first one. Number two, we want to be committed to the Bible as sufficient We want to be committed to the Bible as sufficient, as inadequate, as in we don't need the Bible and sacred tradition or unsacred tradition or consensus or popularity or, 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 or. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. It comes from God. Obviously, that means it's sufficient. But not only does it just say that, it elaborates just to make sure we get the point. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And it tells us why. So that, purpose statement, the man of God, it uses that term because he's talking to pastors first before the pastor tells everybody else. It's a pastoral letter, Right. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for most good works. No. Some good works. No. It says equipped for every good work. He uses that terminology that would have been used back in the first century for a lifeboat. Using this nautical image. Where the lifeboat had certain ropes on it, and it had, if it had flotation devices, I have no idea. I'm not an expert, but I know that's the verbiage he's using. It's adequately equipped for doing its job. Well, we as Christians, and certainly we as a local church, are adequately equipped for every good work. And it comes from the Bible. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? Okay, there it is. Now we know what's right. Now we know what we want to do. Now we know what we should believe. Now we know how we should act. A third priority for us as a local church would be the priority of preaching the Bible, the priority of preaching the Bible, proclaiming the Bible. And we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 4. We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 in particular, where we've got this letter written uh, to Timothy who's supposed to lead a church, and it says there, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the, remember, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, the sufficient word. It makes sense. If it's sufficient and it comes from God, Timothy, don't get up and share your opinions. Timothy, don't get up and... Pool ignorance, as smart as people might be. Timothy, if the Bible is God's Word, you know what you need to do, Timothy, as a leader of believers in a local church? You need to get up and preach it. And it's good and important for us to see that he uses the word preach. Again, he, he doesn't say have a conversation. Preach the word that's there for speaking with authority. See, he couldn't speak with authority if it was based upon his wisdom or somebody else's. You'd have a conversation. Dialogue. But he's saying, Bible is sufficient, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Preach it. Because it's God's Word. And so we as a church want to be committed to that. It's not the only thing we want to be committed to, but we want to be committed to that. We want to be committed to the preaching of God's Word in season and out of season. And it sort of sets the tone for lots of other things. Proclaiming God's word, proclaiming it with clarity, proclaiming it with boldness. Let's move on to something new. Number four. Well, I think we'll do four and five. Otherwise, you guys will be ahead of the second uh, of the first service. We don't want to do that. I think we'll get done in three weeks. Uh, would be the plan. Ready for something new? All right. Good. You're at the edge of your seats. I'm glad for that. Number four. We have to have the priority of a pure gospel, a pure gospel, an undiluted, uncompromised, pure, splendid, beautiful, right, accurate, you use uh, whatever synonym you would like, a pure gospel. And I would invite you to turn to Romans 1.16. It won't answer all the questions for us, but at least gets you in Romans and if you go to Romans 1.16, let's, let's look at a passage that talks about the gospel. And, and this is something we want to be committed to. And we want to focus and emphasize the gospel and not have it just be any old gospel. And remember, and perhaps you don't know this, perhaps you do, the Bible makes it clear that there's more than one gospel. There are two gospels. There's the biblical gospel... And there's another Gospel, which would include all other Gospels. So we can't really say, you know, the great thing is as long as we say Gospel, and we talk about Jesus a little bit, and we talk about love and grace and mercy and these kind of things, it's the Gospel! As long as we say the word Gospel. Even the Bible itself makes it clear that there's more than one Gospel. There's one true Gospel, but there are many substitutes. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But that motivates me. I can't just assume because we talk about it that it's it's actually real and we're actually committed to it. In Romans chapter 1 verse 16, perhaps you know it well, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Apostle Paul writing, For it is, the gospel is, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we don't even know what it even is so far, really, in one sense. But you say, whatever that is, that's pretty good. If if something is described as the power of God, well, I guess that should be a priority for us. But he says, it's the power of God for salvation. That begs the question. All of a sudden, I'm reading this and it's begging all kinds of questions. It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from whom? To everyone who believes, who, who believes what? Well, the great thing is, in Romans one sixteen, Romans one seventeen, and in that section right there, he's just introducing the whole book. And then he goes on in Romans, and you've got the rest of Romans 1, you've got Romans 2, you've got Romans 3 and 4 and 5, and he's making clear, he's unpacking the complexities and the beauty and the multi-sidedness of this great thing called the gospel. And I want to park it here a little bit and talk about our need to be committed to a pure gospel, a true gospel, not another gospel as Galatians talked about. I want so badly for us to be a, a, a gospel-centered church. I want so badly for you to be a gospel-centered Christian where you know what the gospel is. You can articulate the gospel. And we also stand firm together, arm in arm, for the progress, for the furtherance of the gospel. But as we do that, at the same time, we're so positive about the gospel, the good news, we are so committed to it that naturally we must also therefore be on the defense and opposed to any compromising of it. So you've got Romans. It's all positive for the true gospel, the pure gospel. You've got Galatians. I hate to say it's all negative because it's not. But there's a negative tone to it because now you've got those who are wanting to offer something that wears a gospel dress, but it's not really the gospel. I want you to be able to do that. I think it's Mark Dever who pastors in Washington, D.C., who, who requires, and their leaders in their church, I think they require all members to be able to sit down and articulate the Gospel in 90 seconds or less. It's not biblical or unbiblical to make that as a rule, but we're going to start that right now. So before you leave today... <laughs> just kidding, but you know... Can you articulate the gospel clearly without becoming a heretic quickly? (laughs) Can you you articulate the gospel in such a way that would bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ that would be faithful to the text of Scripture in 90 seconds or less? That's a good question, even if it troubles you. I think it's a good question, especially because it troubles you, perhaps. We want to know the gospel, to emphasize the gospel, and to make the gospel clear. And what I've found, the longer I'm a Christian... It's not the more I move away from the gospel and somehow that got me into heaven now that I have my get out of hell free ticket. I can pass go. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I love the gospel. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I want to go back to the cross and I want to emphasize it in my life and see it from all of its different dimensions and I want to talk about it all the time because it's all about the glory of Christ anyway. Oh, and by the way, what are we going to do when we get to heaven and we see Christ? Say, well, sure glad we got past the gospel a long time ago. What should we talk about now? Hello? (laughs) We're going to be doing what people are doing in heaven right now. We're going to be there acknowledging the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain. We're going to be there exalting Christ because of the good news of salvation in Him. We we want to live gospel centered lives. Our whole life is about the gospel, we don't don't move past it. I, I had a horrible, horrible conversation with someone recently, and really that's what it came down to. I got that card punched. I want to move on now and grow in my Christian life. I'm thinking, say what? When Paul, the Apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 3, it says, it is of first importance. It's something you can never fully grasp. You You just go deeper and deeper and deeper and Christ becomes more and more glorious. And our worship becomes richer and richer and richer. Well, back to Romans, I I want to point out to you that if we're going to talk about the gospel, it's not just a matter of, you know what, smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If that's what you think the gospel is, we have a special class for you. (laughs) It is true that, that God may have a wonderful plan for your life. He may have a horrible plan for your life. That's why you need the gospel and not that message. But in Romans, he unpacks what he means by what he's not ashamed of, and and he starts talking about things like God and, and God's righteousness. Do you know what God's righteousness is? God's justice. They come from the same word. God is righteous. God is just. That means He is a judge. That means He does do what is fair. And as the sovereign, almighty God of creation, He's the one that sets up the rules Himself. And he is going to maintain his justice lest somehow he be immoral or amoral or whatever you want to call it. Unjust, that's better. And this same God is the God who says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The same God, the God of Romans, is the God who says all have sinned. If all have sinned and the just, fair wages of sin is death, We all deserve to die. It gets worse. To the point where in Romans chapter 3, if you would look with me there, after looking at it from all these different angles, he ends up saying in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written from Psalm 14, There is none righteous, not even one. And then, if you just want to, to, to complement that a little bit, you move on to chapter 5. And he's starting to talk about the good news. But he obviously, in light of the good news, he's still emphasizing the bad news. So we can see how good the good news is. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So, so we're, we're enemy status. Romans 5, 6, we were helpless. So we didn't meet Christ halfway. We were helpless enemies. If you don't talk about sin when you talk about the gospel, I guarantee you, you're not talking about the gospel. It doesn't make sense. What you're doing is is helping people with a new self-esteem program. Because somehow, they were good enough to somehow earn the merit of God. The Bible doesn't present it that way. The Bible presents it as, no one does good, no, not one, helpless enemies that's what makes the gospel so glorious and that's what has grace making sense grace something you didn't deserve something you didn't deserve so now the cross is beautiful now the cross is amazing because he loved me and had his son come and die for me while I was his enemy oh God this is absolutely amazing this is not something where we're going to do mutual gratification uh, mutual celebrating each other's goodness God is good and I'm good too and that's why he saved me It's critical that we know the backdrop of sin or the gospel really won't make any sense. The justice of God is part of the backdrop or the gospel won't make any sense. And you've got to make that decision. I've got to make that decision. When I'm communicating with people, what I don't want to do is, you know, talk about sin. You know? what i don't want to do, and so i try to tone it down and i think this is legitimate and fine and i talk about how we're all sinners and i'm a sinner too and you know but it's just a matter of the elephant is in the room <laughs> it's coming down to you're telling them that god doesn't think they're good and who likes to hear that nobody and you eventually just have to let them know best way to do that is really just with the bible i think If we're a church that emphasizes the gospel and the cross of Christ, we're going to be a church that talks about sin. You're going to be a Christian that talks about sin. You're going to talk about the righteousness of God. You're going to talk about the justice of God. Because apart from that, the gospel is another gospel. It's a confusing, confusing message that exalts human beings and it doesn't exalt Christ the way He needs to be exalted. This is so serious, folks, that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul tells the Galatian believers, and I will tell you, if you bring another gospel, you're damned. Another gospel other than what? Other than the gospel Romans talks about other than the Gospel Galatians talks about that you are a sinner, there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap between you and God, you've offended Him, you are justly condemned and that's why God is so great and so magnificent that He had His Son live a perfect life on your behalf, He had no obligation to come to earth He came here voluntarily out of love for us, enemies, sinners He lived a perfect life in our place then He goes to the cross He dies a sinner's death though He never sinned, God God maintaining his righteous justice, pours out his wrath on his son so that he could then look upon Pat Abendroth and see me as if I lived the righteous life that Christ lived, so that he could look on you and see you as if you lived the righteous life Christ lived. The Bible calls this justification, and it's talked about in Romans all over the place. Justification is when God declares sinners righteous, even though we're not. I love to ask people, I know I've asked it here so many times, but I'll ask it again. In light of what we're talking about, true or false, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And the answer is true. I know it's false in a certain sense, but for now... With qualification, it's true. And if you've never really grappled with that reality, please do. You need to. If you think somehow a person can get into heaven without perfection, you don't really understand the gospel. I really, really, really believe that. You don't understand what Jesus did. You don't understand substitutionary atonement. Fancy word, I know, that Christ died in your place to satisfy God. And here's what I mean. Let me unpack it a little bit. God is righteous. God is just. He has just laws. And He has said, here's my law. If you sin, you'll die. It's not just physical death. Everything in the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament points to it's not just physical death. It ends up being eternal death. After all, even Adam and Eve didn't die right away physically. God says, if you sin, you'll die. We've all sinned. God is obligated, based upon His own character and His own perfect, just laws, to condemn. So it's not like it's going to be, all right, God, you know, I tried to have my good outweigh my bad and I haven't ever killed anybody and and so I'm ready for heaven. I've been a good person. I totally don't get it at all, if that's what I say. And if that's what you're saying, you totally don't get it. And why did God have His Son come to begin with? It was dumb. It was ludicrous. But God in His infinite wisdom... Oh, and by the way, all of this too. If you think the solution is, try to be generally a good person. And as long as you're religious, that'll do it. Even though you wouldn't say it this way, what you're assuming is that God is unjust and He takes bribes under the table. Because this God has said, the wages of sin is death, and everyone is a sinner, and so now we say, "Oh God, it's not death; it's religion. It's an under-the-table move. You are insulting God, and so I am when we. Th- so am I when I think like that." What God does is He maintains His righteousness. And again, this is what the early chapters of Romans are about. He maintains His righteous standard. He doesn't compromise it. He he doesn't uh, become an unjust judge who takes bribes. It's there. It's never changed. And then He has His Son come and live for us the perfect life that, that we couldn't live and die for us a sinner's death, bear His wrath. So then, if we trust in Him, we cling to Him, we depend upon Him in His perfect life, and His perfect sacrifice, a synonym for that is believe, trust, faith, that He did it for us. The Bible says you'll be justified. Ah, what is that? Declared perfect. So based upon the righteousness of Christ, And believing in him and not in myself or my church or someone else, I believe in him, I trust in him, I have his righteousness. Guess what? I'm ready to meet a just God who says the wages of sin is death. Payment made in full. Jesus said, It is finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, Jesus' work was done. This is the gospel. And you say, that's that's really complicated. It's not. It's not complicated at all. It's just very humbling. You can't. Christ can. Christ did. Trust in Him. Not in yourself. But this is a tough one. It's a tough one because everything in us as sinners... wants to have it be about us glorifying ourselves and not glorifying Christ. I can't urge you strong enough to not only know the Gospel so you can believe it yourself, but to know the Gospel well enough so you can communicate it and you can make it clear to others that you would have that gut level commitment and devotion to the greatness and the glory of Christ and you would be able to communicate it and you would want to communicate it to others. But it's not going to be easy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul was so clear that it's not easy. And that's why He told the Corinthian believers, and I'm not going to preach a whole other sermon in 1 Corinthians 1. I did that yesterday in Dallas. (laughs) But what what he does is he makes it so clear to the Corinthian believers if they're going to have a commitment to this gospel, they need to know that not everybody's going to accept it. In fact, many people are going to say, you're a fool. He wants believers to know that ahead of time. God wants you to know. I want you to know ahead of time that if you're committed to this gospel, people absolutely absolutely will conclude, some of them, that you are an idiot. I think he uses the word for moron as a matter of fact to be more biblical and precise. That's the negative side. Go get him, team. Isn't that great? (laughs) You're a moron. Oh, man. Great commission. Let's go out and everybody will think we're morons. Well, that's that's not the only thing that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 1. Also in 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to those he was seeking to equip, and I would want to make it clear to you, who I'm hopefully, by secondary means, trying to equip. He says, but to the called. Ah, the called. But to the called of God, they, they, and this is just my paraphrase, they will see it as the wisdom of God. They will embrace it. They will embrace it by faith. Now, who are the called? Don't know. I only know who the called are after they believe. So what do we do? We proclaim the the good news message to everyone, the Gospel, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with great passion and fervor. And we know some people are going to write us off as morons. And we know others are going to Embrace it as the wisdom of God. That's what we do. I don't know about you, but I really, really like knowing that ahead of time. I like knowing that ahead of time. I don't like knowing that people are going to think I'm a moron. But if they're going to, I'd just rather know ahead of time. <laughs> and to know, you know, I'm not trying to impress them anyway. God has told me ahead of time that that's going to be one of the responses. But what I'm motivated to do then is keep the message of the cross the message of the cross. I'm not trying to amuse those folks anyway. What I'm trying to do is make it clear the truth about the substitutionary death of Christ... Knowing the called will respond. Read First read Corinthians 1 later today and you get it in your mind. And then read into chapter 2 where Paul uses this, this phraseology of resolve. Where I, where I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. Why would he say I determined, I made my mind up ahead of time, I resolved to, to, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified? It's because he knew there would be pressure too. Pressure to... Soften it a little bit. Maybe we don't really need to talk about sin. Maybe we can just talk about human potential, you know. I think he even felt the pressure. You'll feel the pressure too. Know the gospel. Resolve to proclaim only the gospel. Christ will be exalted. Some people think you're a moron. Other people will respond in faith. I love talking about this. As you might be able to tell, this is the key to our hope. The good news. I think it's great news. God is great. God isn't a compromiser who takes bribes, He's the great, just, awesome, Righteous God who is also loving and kind and compassionate and gracious and has His Son do it for me because I couldn't do it. This has got to be the heartbeat of the church. It has to be of first importance. In one sense, I was thrilled when that person I mentioned earlier sat me down and basically said, I can't be here anymore because I'm not growing as a Christian. I wasn't thrilled by that part. And I said, what do you mean? And in essence, the person said, you keep talking about... And then they squirmed and they weren't sure exactly how to say it. Rightfully so, they should have been squirming. I said, the cross? Well, yeah, but um, I wouldn't want to say it that way. Uh, I was thrilled in the sense that, you know what, we're doing something right. And the great tragedy was, the conversation went on to say, you know, I really want more emphasis upon my rewards. Folks, the greatest reward you will ever receive is Jesus Christ Himself. And to be with Him and to know Him. And the greatest reward you will ever receive this side of eternity is to know what He has done more deeply and from a richer, more true biblical perspective the more you understand what christ has done the more amazing he is and the more it fuels your devotion to him the more it fuels your prayer life the more it fuels your evangelism the more it fuels your musical worship the more it fuels your faithfulness as a husband if you are one or your faithfulness as a wife if you are one or a child or an employee or an employer you fill in the blank why do you think ephesians 5 talks the way it does about husbands and wives, and it's all based upon a rich, deep, amazing, profound understanding of the cross. <sighs> Can't lose sight of the cross. It's of first importance. Everything else is based upon the cross. We need to talk a lot about justification. We need to talk a lot about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And if we don't, then we're a messed up church. I read a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. It's in the the beginning of a chapter in a book that just came out about the atonement. And I read the sermon and interestingly enough, over a hundred years ago, he talked about churches that don't emphasize the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He said what they emphasize is a dumb and dummy gospel. And if he were writing today, as relevant as that seemed perhaps he would say they're emphasizing a dumb and dumber gospel no we don't want to be as a dumb and dumber church we are we are a dumb and dumber church if our focus is not on christ because this whole thing is called christianity i love christ I love what he's done in my life. I love what he's doing in my life. And I hope you do too. Enough to say, I'm going to do my part in owning the gospel. I'm going to do my part in owning the gospel, not just so I can be more effective as an individual Christian, but so I can be more effective even as a member of Omaha Bible Church because we need to not be a dumb and dumber church. We need to be a church committed to the glory of Christ. Let's move on. We'll do this final one, number five. I promise we'll go faster next week. (laughs) Number five. Another priority for us is related to number four, and that is the priority of the Great Commission. The priority of the Great Commission. And if you turn to Matthew 28, you'll see what I mean. You know the passage, if you've been a Christian very long at all. We'll get there in due time in Matthew. If we're really committed to this gospel, we won't say, and it's only for us. If we're really committed to it, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to want to tell other people, oh, and even if we don't want to tell other people, which seems crazy... He commands us to tell other people. And so we will because we want to follow Him. And He's in charge. This is His movement. He started it. He polices it. He empowers it. He encourages us as we're in it. And so He says at the end of His earthly ministry, at the very end of Matthew, if you'd read with me, you see there, He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, or behold, as an exclamation point, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And our time is, is fleeting, but I can at least say a, a handful of things about this, and we'll save the rest for our particular study of it. But, but it only makes sense if, if Jesus commissioned His disciples to go and tell everybody they could possibly tell everything that He told them, that this ends up being a baton-passing thing. So if he told them to tell others everything that he told them, part of that would even be the Great Commission, and so we've received that baton as well. And so until he comes, remember he said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age? Until the end of the age, we're going to keep passing on that baton. And so we we sort of see uh, the emphasis there. Sometimes we forget the fact that he says, uh, when he says, go therefore and make disciples, the command is actually make disciples you could even translate it as you are going what's the priority going no go on get out there no <laughs> the priority is as you are going it's assume that you are going It's assuming that the message is so good you're compelled to go. It's assuming that even in ordinary daily life that you are busy going places as you are seeking to do the second greatest commandment which flows from the first greatest commandment which is loving your neighbor as yourself. You're busy going and doing things associated with that per se. What are you doing? Your priority as you are going is the priority of making disciples. Disciples making disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. No doubt this is tied to the gospel and telling them about all the great things he, had, he has done and really what it means to be His follower and what it means to come to Him by God's grace through faith and His finished work. And, and we all understand the idea. As you are going, you make disciples. It's interesting that at this level, as He's talking to the disciples, this is an individual thing. Now, obviously, we move on, the birth of the church, and there's a corporate emphasis as well. But he's not talking to church staff evangelists. He's talking to disciples who will go and make disciples, who will go and make disciples, who will go and make disciples. Folks, he's talking to you, and he's talking to me. As you are going, make disciples. Now, I want to emphasize one more thing when it comes to this, and that is the fact that he says, Make disciples of all nations. I love that. I love that because that's a passage in Scripture now that really emphasizes and really proclaims the inclusiveness of Christianity. So many times, we as Christians are written off as as people who are so exclusive. Exclusive. And you know, everybody wants us to become more inclusive. I say we should. Uh, This is great. I mean, this is so great. I want to go on record as saying, as this right-wing, crazy, you know, fire and brimstone preacher, as saying, we need to be way, 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 way more inclusive as Christians. Man, if that can't get me on Larry King, I don't know what can. Christians who believe the Bible, who believe it's all true, need to stop being so exclusive and need to be far more inclusive. And before any of you leave, (laughs) I really mean it. Because Jesus says as you are going, make disciples of all nations. And now, those who are opposing me on the panel on Larry King Live are saying, well, actually, that's not the kind of uh, inclusivity we're looking for. Maybe you all should go back to your exclusiveness. Right? Christianity is very inclusive. Now, those who aren't so comfortable with this are really asking us to be exclusive. That's fine for you. You just keep that in your buildings. Just keep that to yourselves. If it works for you, fine. But don't share that with us. Don't impose that upon us. And we're saying, I thought you wanted inclusivity. You know what? We're obligated by Jesus Christ to love you way more than you're asking for. We want to love you so much that our message is an all-inclusive message. Isn't it good? Make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all people groups, all religious groups, all colors, all ages, all continents. It's a broad, inclusive word. We are to be making disciples for Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place as the great, great Savior, of all people groups, no one's off limits. How awesome is that? How offensive is that to those who would want nothing to do with Him? This is not just license. This is not just permission. This is command mode from Jesus, the author, founder, sustainer of Christianity, for you... To step over every boundary. And as loving and as kindly and as graciously and as thoughtfully, remember the Bible talks about using wisdom, as wisely as you can and as compassionately as you can, you violate all boundaries out of faithfulness and out of love for Christ and out of love for those people. We do need to be a lot more inclusive. As we are being more inclusive, we are indeed telling those folks who we are loving about the exclusivity of Christ. This Jesus who said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, there is no other name. So now we're talking about conscious faith. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's talking about the name of Christ. Did you notice that they complement each other? It's an all-inclusive message. It is for everyone. That is the very reason why Christ can be the only way. He's not just for Jews. He's not just for middle class white people or black people or Asian people or whoever. He's the one and only Savior who saves people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is great. It's awesome. It's just awesome to think about. And remember, if... If Jesus isn't the only Savior, then based upon what He says in Matthew 28 and other places, He's a nutcase. He is. Because He is telling His followers to go to everyone and make disciples of them. The Great Commission makes no sense at all if Jesus isn't the only Savior. In fact, maybe it would be better if we didn't do anything with the Great Commission. We should not do any missions. We shouldn't do any evangelism because as we are going, we're making disciples or at least seeking to do so and some people are outright rejecting him. See, Jesus is assuming here that he's the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. So we've got to go. No, we are going. We're compelled to go. And so as we go, we, we communicate. And obviously this is to be done here in this continent. It's to be done on the other side of the world. And Lord willing, we're going to get better and better at doing that, Making, taking measures that are ensuring that. I'm motivated. I don't know about you. This is one of the key things that we're committed to as a church. I ask you, I urge you, I invite you, I implore you to own it yourself and not just try to have others do it for you. This is for us. The glory of Christ is ultimately what's at stake. That's the motivator here. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity I have to exalt Christ and to proclaim Your name. And I am so thankful for so many believers, even who are here and who are in other places, who love the same Christ, who want to exalt Him in everything. Lord, we would ask that You would encourage us along the way. For the glory of Your name, we pray. Amen.